goodness of God in the land of the living? Well, you're certainly in the land of the living, but are you enjoying the goodness of God there? And uh, as the psalmist puts it, uh, if you've got a Bible and you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're continuing with our series. We're drawing towards the end of it. And uh, we have been focusing on different themes through the book rather than expositing every part of the book. There's a, it's a book that is rich in so much. Uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we will be at verse 17. I haven't used this for so long. <laughs> I need to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Um, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Now, in giving this next instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions that exist among you, and in part I believe it. Now, there also have to be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For when you eat, each one takes his own supper first, and one goes hungry while another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What am I to say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I do not praise you. Sounds a bit exasperated there, doesn't it? <laughs> What on earth are you guys doing? You know, uh, you're certainly not eating the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks and eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are asleep. For, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry... Have him eat at home so that you do not come together for judgment. As to the remaining matters, I will give you instructions when I come. Paul has written to the church in response to reports that have come to him from Chloe's household and also a letter that he has received from the church raising various questions. And this morning we are in this, this chapter, chapter 11, which is actually a loaded chapter and it would take a few weeks, actually, to exposit the whole chapter. But we want to just draw out one or two themes for it. But to understand this chapter and what Paul says about communion or the Lord's Supper or breaking of bread, from, depending on which tradition you have come from, 
we need to understand the book. So often we read this particular passage in isolation from the rest of the book, and we don't really hear exactly what, he, what Paul is saying. And Paul's major concern in writing is that they are living and behaving like the world around them, focusing on personalities and power structures, uh, a denial of the material world, and over-realized eschatology uh, where some thought that they had already arrived. But Paul writes to them, uh, Paul writes to them subverting uh, the whole idea of personalities and power structures that are a result of the fall and the domain of the flesh that has been judged in Christ and hallelujah is passing away. They are the people of God. They have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And we've been singing about that this morning, those songs, Amazing Grace, etc., uh, they are the new people of God. They are part of the new creation, and yet they are behaving like the rest of the world. It appears that not much has changed about them apart from their spiritual experience. And so he writes, subverting their, the whole idea of personalities and power structures that result from the fall. In chapters 1 and 2, it was a focus on personalities. And Paul's response is, all are of God. And if you notice there, it wasn't the personalities that were making a lot of themselves. It was the people that were making a lot of the personalities, rather like we have today, isn't it? But so Paul subverts that, and he said all of these people, whether it's Peter, whether it's Apollos, etc., all are of God. Every gift is from God, and we are all servants of God. In chapter 7, he makes a staggering statement that the, the wife has authority over the husband's body in chapter 7 and verse 4, so undermining the thinking of the day. That was a totally radical statement because in those days, the man had authority over the woman, over her body. Paul writes and says this is not so that they have a mutual authority that they share together in the marriage relationship. In, chapters, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 12, he subverts the cultural understanding of male dominance over women by emphasizing their mutual origin and dependency, that both male and female find their origins in God. And, and just a note here that many of you will be familiar with the so-called doctrine of headship. That is something that is read back into this passage and not what Paul was talking about at all. And if we read from that point of view, we will miss what he is saying. In chapter 12, the picture, is again, is one of, of mutual need and dependence, as Sam was sharing last week about the body. We can't be all ears, and we can't be all mouths, and we can't be all a leg, etc. We, we need each part of the body. We need to be a whole. There is a mutual need and dependence. In chapters 13 and 14, the context is one of, of mutual love and edification, that we are called to, to love one another. Chapter 13 there, this, this wonderful love of God, this agape love, and, and that should be expressed in and through our lives and through our relationships, and out of that, a mutual edifying of one another and encouraging of one another in Christ. And so we can say this, that Redemption in Christ has brought about a restoring of and a realigning to God's original purposes in creation. You know the story of the fall, how that Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve, and as a result of it, 
Uh, they, they disobeyed God, and as a result of it, the whole of creation was impacted. A curse came upon creation. It affected not only their relationship with God, but it affected their relationship with one another. And we see that played out across uh, planet Earth today. But in Christ, God has changed things, and he is restoring and realigning things to his original purposes in Christ, so that in creation, so that we can say that the boundaries that were brought about by the fall are gone. Hallelujah. So there is no boundary between, between Jew and Gentile or any other group of people whatsoever. Those old boundaries are gone. The power plays that came into place as a result of the fall are gone. Hallelujah. And the prejudices that result from the fall are done away. As Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's declare that together. It's up on the screen behind me. Let's read it together, shall we? There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now just take a look around you. Okay? Just just go on, have a look around. You know, this is who we're talking about. It's a person sitting next to you. It's a person sitting behind you. It's a person sitting in front of you. It's a person who welcomed you when you came in. It's a person who will be serving when you go out there for teas and coffees and so on. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen? And and what I love about Paul is one of his favorite pictures of the church is as a family, is as a family where we are brothers and sisters, and we have this constant repetition through his letters, uh, uh, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are siblings of one another, and we are sharers in this life together, and we're working out how to do this life together in Christ. That's why we need one another. Families need one another. So Corinthians is about the church, the people who belong to God, who've been called out from the world, the people who are now the temple of the one true and living God. And there were many temples around in those days, and there was particularly the big temple up on the hill, uh, where they worshipped all sorts of gods in different ways, etc. But we are called to be, and they were called to be, the temple of the one true and living God, the place where God himself the creator of the heavens and the earth dwells. And that's quite something, isn't it? Because in Paul's writings, he talks about us individually as the temple of God. That each one of us are carriers of God's presence in some way. But he also talks about us corporately as the temple of God. That the Spirit of God dwells within us as a corporate entity. Not only that, but they were also participators in the new creation the new reality that was breaking in. The old had been judged in Christ at the cross and was passing away. Hallelujah. That is the story of the cross. It was judgment on the old world. And that is now passing away. And now the new world comes in in Christ. So that in Christ we are new creations. We are partakers of a new order, a new way of living. And as such, they were expected to be different, to conduct themselves personally and corporately as those who belonged to and were indwelt by the very presence of God. Now, just just stop and think about that this morning. If you know Jesus, 
He dwells with you. He dwells in you. Kind of, we, we rush through life, don't we? And we, we, we don't spend time thinking about these things as we should. But the presence of God. They were so concerned when Jesus was going to, to leave the earth. And, and they had enjoyed fellowship with, with Jesus. They had received ministry from him. They had been equipped by him, etc., etc. And Jesus says, I, I'm going away. And suddenly disappointment overwhelms them. The one they had pinned all their hopes in was suddenly now leaving them on their own. But suddenly he says to them, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will send one just like myself to be with you, and he will remain with you forever. Hallelujah. The precious Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, the encourager. He is with you this morning. Whatever you are going through this morning, he is with you. He is with you there in that situation. So the church is not an abstract group of individuals, but a believing, committed community, learning to listen to God and do life together. And the letters were written to, to such communities. And in, a, in a day and age where individualism, individualism is rampant, that's why we believe that membership is important. That sense of belonging. This is, this is my church. This is where, who I am joined to. These are people who will rejoice with me when I rejoice. These are people who will weep with me when I weep. These are people who will pray with me when I need prayer. These are people who will encourage me as I go on this walk with Jesus. We are brothers and sisters. We're family. We're siblings. And, and yet he says right here in verse 18, he says, I hear that divisions exist among you. You see, when you get the picture of the reality of the church, the idea that there should be any divisions among them seems quite anachronistic. Why should that be? I hear that there are divisions among you, he says in 11 verse 18. And, and in verse 19, I, I, just to reference that verse there for a moment, for in the first place I hear, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions that exist among you. In part, I believe it. For there also have to be factions among you, so that those who are improved may become evident among you. Some people take that to mean that some divisions are very, very good. And, uh, and he's not arguing that case at all. He's being actually a little bit sarcastic. That's what's going on here. And later on in this chapter, when he calls upon them to examine themselves, it is within that context because of the divisions that exist among them. Because they are not discerning the body as a whole. And there's a bit of a play on words there, the body as in Christ, and the body as in the body of Christ, the church community. And so Paul is saying, there are divisions among you. And as we know elsewhere, he says, is Christ divided? In fact, he says that right in the first chapter. Is Christ divided so that the, the idea that they could be an assembly of God gathering together unto him, a, a place where he dwells, and there would be divisions among them, kind of like it just shouldn't be the case. And so that is the context when later on he says, when you come together, examine yourselves to see whether these things are so. It's not so much about an inward-looking, first of all, uh, a, a, an inward-looking or a, a, that spiritual inward look whereby sometimes we examine ourselves, and there is a place for that. It is this business of the wider body. 
Are we living in unity with one another? Are we keeping the unity of the Spirit, as he says in Ephesians? That is our job. It, it talks about that unity and that we are to preserve, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But they were behaving in ways which were just so wrong. So in, in the world where they were, they were focusing on class, essentially. That's what was happening. Um, in the churches, in the homes that they gathered in, uh, in the, the, the Roman villas, etc., you, you had what was called the uh, 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 buildings around the outside, and, uh, and then you had a, a, an atrium, and then you had a garden, etc. I did think about putting a picture up and all that, but I thought that would just take me too long if I go down there. But just imagine it for a while, go away and do some research on it. And, uh, but what would happen is that the wealthy people very often hosted the church because they had the space. And you can read books that see, uh, go and read uh, Roger Starkey, I think it is, Rodney Starkey, who wrote a book on the, the growth of the church in the, in the early centuries and, and how God used wealthy people to aid that growth because they provided a place and a base for the church to exist. And so very often they would meet in people's homes and, and what would happen is they would be there, the, 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 the upper classes, as it were, would be in the triclinium, which was kind of like a rather nice room with sofas in it where you could sort of indulge yourself. And then the, the less wealthy would, would, would meet out in the atrium. And uh, they, well, they, the, the picture seems to be that they had better food in the triclinium and, and uh, it wasn't so, so good out in the, the atrium. And Paul is saying, this, is, this shouldn't be the case. You know, this is not the way the church should be behaving. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And not only that, some of them, they, they got some really good food and they were, couldn't wait to get into it and they were going ahead and eating and, and, and there were those who hadn't got food, they hadn't been served yet. And Paul is saying, this is not the way that you should behave. Paul says that that is not good. But I want you to notice, just to talk very briefly about the meal, in, in verse uh, 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and gave thanks and broke it. Perhaps we struggle with the concept of communion in the sense that, as we're going to do a little bit later, just before we come to an end, we, we separate it out from the culture of eating. Whereas in New Testament times, it was all part of the, the gathered community, the family gathering together, sharing in a meal together. And so they would also take bread and wine as a particular part of that meal. But I, I grew up in a background, and I don't know about you, but my background was uh, very much that communion was what we called an ordinance, uh, which kind of meant there was just something you did to remember Jesus put it very simply. It was a memorial um, whereby we remember Jesus. Um, but over the years, I, I've come to appreciate that communion is far, far more than that. And I'm in danger of getting into some bigger discussions here that involved all sorts of big personalities in church history and so on. But when we, when we, read, when we read the story, when we read the nature of communion, there was something very, very powerful about it. So I just want to start, hold on to that for this moment. It was no ordinary meal. It was a spiritual meal. It was a feeding and feasting on Jesus. And in, in, the, in verses 24 and 25, he, he says, when you do this, Jesus says, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Now, this raises a bigger question. 
And a bigger question, particularly in charismatic churches like ours, who, who love the presence and the power and the activity of the Holy Spirit. And the tendency, let's be honest, in churches like ours is to downplay communion, is to, let's be honest, tag it on to part of a meeting, to see it as something almost as non-essential, if I can put it that way. And I, I've been in some communion meetings in the past, and I, it's like, oh my goodness, what is this all about, you know? You see, if we, the, the argument is like this, is if I am in Christ and I am a new creation in him, if I already have everything in Christ and I have the presence of the Holy Spirit with me, that dynamic of the Spirit, and if when we gather together, that is our experience, why... Do I need to do something like take communion? What's the point of it? Simple act of remembrance. And it's a good question. And it's a question that those of us who are charismatic know the experience of the Spirit need to ask of ourselves. Because when we look at the, the Scriptures, it has a far bigger place in their gathering together. So you, you read on the day of Pentecost, don't you? After all those people had come to know Jesus, after the Spirit was outpoured, it says they continued in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. It was an essential aspect of their life together. Paul has already referenced it a, couple, a chapter earlier in this particular book. Let's put it this way. In our focus on an experience of the Spirit, as real as that is, and I'm all for that, please don't hear me wrongly, there is a very real danger of developing a hyper-spirituality where the focus becomes on our feelings and experiences that disconnects us from the material dimension of life rather than the grace that is available through bread and wine. Let's be honest. We don't always feel on a high, do we? And the danger is we try to produce a high. And when we can't get to that high and we can't produce it, we get frustrated spiritually. And when we get frustrated spiritually, the enemy has an opportunity to come in and say, oh my goodness me, you're a pretty rotten Christian, aren't you? You know, your feelings are all over the place. What is going on with you? And I believe that's why this meal is so important, because it takes it away from ourselves and it turns the focus onto Jesus. So when you think of this meal, I'm not focusing on what I am feeling. I am focusing on the host and his provision. Just, you, just imagine this for a minute. You've been out, invited out to dinner. You know, you've been invited to dinner, and you get there, and as is traditionally the case, isn't it, is, how can I help? Is there anything I can do? And the host just says, no, you just take it easy. You just enjoy being here. You just relax. And so you, you, you're served, and you eat this meal, and you enjoy it. But you've not worked on it at all. You've not done anything to aid that meal that is sustaining your body. And when you go, you are so grateful, aren't you? You're thankful 
and you, you, you give your thanks to the hosts, etc. And in many ways, that's what communion is. It's, it's Jesus inviting us as the host to a meal, where he says, come, my brothers and sisters, come and let me feed you. And I think the picture is a beautiful one because it takes it off me because I know that me can get into performance mode. I don't know about you. That might be my peculiar problem, you know. But I can get into performance mode and I can be pretty down on myself at times. But when I come to the table, I come to him and I come to the meal that he has provided. And through that meal, he is able to minister grace to me. So I need to try and just draw, draw through this a little bit quickly here. If I ask you to remember something, what do you remember about the past? It will be something you recollect and you'll forget tomorrow. You know? So oh, what do you remember about this event? Or what do you remember about that person? And, and we're in danger of thinking like that when it comes to communion, that, okay, it's just like, oh, yeah, Jesus died, didn't he? Yeah, Jesus shed his blood, didn't he? Yeah, he paid the price for my sins, didn't he? Yeah, he rose again, didn't he? Yeah, he conquered Satan, sin, death, and hell, didn't he? Yeah, 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 I know all that stuff, you know? But the remembering that we get in the New Testament is a totally different remembering altogether. It's a remembering whereby we engage with the story where we engage with the event itself that makes it a present event in our lives today. And so in that way, it becomes a transformative event wherein we encounter Christ afresh, time and time again. And it's good just to, to remember that. I remember a Christian, someone in church many, many years ago, came to me and he, and he even served in, in, in ministries, large ministries and on. And he said to me, Richard, what am I supposed to do in communion? What am I supposed to do? And this, this, this brother had been brought up in church, served in church in so many different ways. What am I supposed to do? And I felt so sad because he was a brother who had been part of church for years but never understood what communion was really about and what you meant to think about and all the rest of it. I've been there as well. But here we are. So on your seats, or with you, so 